Hello and welcome to Lunch with Lyle. Today my guest is Warren Sack. Warren is a professor of film and digital media at UCSC. He holds a bachelor's degree from Yale and a PhD from MIT and focus in the media lab. Warren is a close personal friend of mine. I have interviewed him multiple times for the Geekspeak broadcast, mostly around his book, The Software Arts, available by MIT Press, which he makes an argument that where we are teaching software in academia is not the right place. It shouldn't be in the sciences. It should be in the arts. Mm, That's a spoiler alert, by the way. The book covers a lot more, including the history of And we have a multi-part series on this topic at geekspeak.org if you are curious. I invited Warren and Jennifer over for dinner tonight, and as their son Felix was coming over, we had a lovely meal. After dinner, as we're sitting talking, I kept on saying, hey, can I interview? Can I interview? Because, you know, every day I'm making one of these things, and I like to talk with Warren. And finally, Warren and I went up for a half an hour conversation. We spoke for two hours. I enjoyed the conversation and the time flew by. I hope you enjoyed as well. It is here in its entirety, almost completely unedited. Because now, for me, it is late and it is time to go to bed. But for you, the conversation is just beginning. Here's my friend, Warren Sack. And do you have the curtains in here before the sound? Yeah, it's so the echo is not as bad. Okay. Yeah. Right. And I've interviewed some people this week that have been just really echoey in the spaces, but I don't really want them to move rooms. Right. So I try to do it post-processing, and I can a bit, but then it gets, you start hearing robotic artifacts that aren't great. I suppose. Yeah. I would say that people that are know what they're listening for know what it is. You know, most people don't necessarily pay attention to it. Right. So then it's the question of like how much echo I can take out versus not, because it, it does. Well, I noticed that just listening to like NPR, there's obviously a lot of the correspondents are just recording from their living room. The regular morning shows and things yeah. like that sometimes. Why do you pay attention to audio quality like that? Oh, it's not something I do consciously, but... It just shows up? I just think like, what's that? Oh, the kids. Or Oh, yeah, cool. <laughs> yeah. Well, maybe it's part of the t- the, the more human nature of media. The, the echo thing as well. Yeah. A lot of people are, they're in their home and they haven't tuned this, the sound of their kitchen or where they're doing it from. I think we're in a flux in what's acceptable content and what's civil media compared to at one point. You know, it used to be that you need a lot of equipment and because right. of that you had a lot of staff and it was a whole studio and so the studio, so everything was really high quality. And now because people are recording on their phones and you're used to like YouTube videos and... YouTube, I think, changed the aesthetic a lot. Yeah. And it's almost like if you have some problems with the quality, it's more authentic in some way. It's less, it's more real. I think there's that thought. Yeah. I have an alcohol problem. Or I have a drinking problem. I drink my. <laughs> I spilled my soda on my chest. It's a friend Zuko's of mine. Zuko's here to join us. Hi, yeah, the dogs come by and say hi sometimes. So you have been trying to learn Spanish. I should say, you have been learning Spanish. Well, I've been trying to learn Spanish. I think it was <laughs> better phrased the first way you had it. Well, how are you using, what are you using to learn Spanish? Well, it's this app, Duolingo, that I think was developed by the CMU professor originally. I was very, I don't know, skeptical at the beginning. How could you learn a language on a little app? But they do a really good job. It's interesting. I, re- I recall some connection with Duolingo and reCAPTCHA. 
Feels like there's some yeah the same guy same guy. same guy okay yeah. cool and I'm Re- spacing his name right now recaptcha we'll we'll get to it at some point I'm sure you'll remember, think of it in that in that large brain of yours um, recaptcha of course is this thing that people hate now but it's basically the ability to identify a picture and like finish words the big example of this was you'd see like scrambled up words that were a little strange and you have to type the the letters of the word and this was actually used to translate old books because they were books that were scanned in and so then you basically use the power of everybody kind of guessing. And the consensus of what the letters were would be the new translation of it. And the system got better and better over time. And of course, this is because it was the boundary of what software could do. It did prove that you were human. But of course, the software got better over time. So the system got more complex. And eventually, we can't figure it out. And we fail to be human or fail to be better than the software, I guess is what it is. Is that a good analogy of what recapture is? Yeah, I I think it was, um, I mean, the the guy. Oh, let's look it up. Let's look it up. I can't. We've got a computer but, right here. I've got this but thing what he Google. did his dissertation on was, I think, what he called human computing. So the idea was that there were certain things that computers can do, and there are certain things that humans can do. But um, some computing tasks, you really have to offload. There he is, Louise Von Ahn. Uh, Louise Von Ahn? Yeah. Uh, some tasks, you really need part of the calculation to be done by the human. So... Uh, Machine vision was definitely a part of that, right? There's certain things that the machine doesn't know whether that those are uh, those are stripes on your pants, but you're laying sideways, or it's like a set of steps that you're going up. It, there's there's no way for it to figure it out. So you say, no, those are steps. Um, and you put people in there. Right. And so he had this idea that, well, you have people ask answer a lot of questions. Yeah. <laughs> and then... It got the idea of like, oh, well, actually, that would be very useful for distinguishing people from machines. And so then Google bought that whole thing. That's And that's what your bank has and everything, right? Now yeah. you've, you've got to go through all these tests. This is also the test of like... A robot. This is also the test of like, here's 12 pictures. Tell me the ones that have the taxi cabin and tell me the ones that have street lights, things like right. that. So, Which are really irritating to use. That's my experience. I, I don't like using them. Well, I think... On the one hand, they're very useful. They're very useful in two ways for the for the banks. Make sure that you're actually a person and not a robot, so they're not getting their door banged on constantly by a robot. And and, and that's actually the really interesting point is that the reason why there's so much cracking into people's systems by accounting software is you run a robotic software to do it for you. And then you'll mine a whole bunch of passwords and usernames by just brute force, and then you can take over people's accounts. Yeah. It's not actually a person trying to get into your account at first. It's a right. robot. And right. therefore, we'll just make it really hard. Make it be, have to be a person, and therefore you get rid of most of the attacks. Okay, so that's the first yeah. thing. Right? And, then, and then they're actually running those tests on databases that somebody cares about. Oftentimes they're people who are doing surveillance or machine vision or something like that. So, excuse me. Um, so you've got to be able to distinguish, you know, that's a bicycle or that's a bus or that's that's a staircase for their practical application. So the banks are more or less giving, um, you know, they're they're collecting data that's very useful for another company. I see. So the data set itself becomes useful. And that's a right. big thing that Google was doing that I was talking about with retranslating translating old books into type or yeah. Scanning old books, I guess, is effectively what it is. Yeah, yeah. So human-aided scanning of, of old text. Um, so this guy, Louis von Ahn, kind of was a 
proponent of this and helped produce that and probably was part of the selling the company to Google and all of that. And then he started this thing called Duolingo, was part of starting this thing called Duolingo. And Duolingo is a language learning. Do you have any idea why those two things, like why his field switched? Or? Well, I, I, you know, I don't know a lot about him, but uh, my impression he's some kind of genius who's figured out a lot of things in a lot of different areas. Okay. And so um, he, he did a whole series of games as well. Um, and I think the Duolingo is an outgrowth of that research on games because Duolingo is learning a language, but it's been gamified. And so you earn points for doing lessons and you compete against other people who are learning. It's all distributed. So you're divided into a group of 30 every week, new group of 30, and you compete against the other people. Not directly. You don't ever get to know them. It's just you see how how much work they've done over the course of the week, and you get ranked according to that. It's um, it's 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 interesting also because you know you find out. So I've been going for what 102 days now, and you look at other people's profiles, and some people have been on there. So I've been on there since October, but some people have been on there for like six years, right? And they have, um, they've, you, you can't believe how much work they, because they have a cumulative score about how many points they've gotten. So, uh, you know, you earn like 10 or 20 points per lesson. And what's a lesson? Like, uh, Rojo is red, uh, that kind of thing? Yeah, yeah. yeah okay. that's what it is. So the lesson always broken into um, translation from one language to the other, um, but it, both directions. And then, um, pronouncing stuff and then also um dictation more or less so they they say something verbally and you've got to write it out and um and so you know you're beginning you you kind of find a pace and so forth so my pace is i don't know i do somewhere between two and three thousand points a week i can't remember exactly what it is but i've i've been in groups now where people can do that much in like a day. I'm just doing and, it all day long. Well, I don't I don't know how they actually do. <laughs> I'm very, I'm very curious, right? I was in a group last week where the the person who won the week more or less had 20,000 points. Wow. Like I I don't even know. <laughs> so it's um it it, it gives you a peek into the mystery of other people's working methods. Like, mm. how can somebody actually get that much done? And the only thing I can imagine is they're doing it, like, night and day. Yeah. I mean, it's a pretty cool idea. You can, and it's also a free app. So you can download this app and say, I want to learn French or Spanish. I, I was doing it years ago when I worked for that French company. I was doing French. And it kind of it shows you some vocabulary words you're about to learn, and then it goes and shows you what they are and gives an example. And then you go through it again, and it kind of... It, it, multiple question, you know, multiple choice. It shows femme, and then you have to say, is that a woman or a man or a girl or a boy? And then you pick the right one, and you pick the right one, you get to move on. So it's that kind of like repetitive quizzing slash teaching. And then there's a bit of verbal where you can actually speak to it, and it kind of assesses your pronunciation. Yeah. You said you were you were a little skeptical about it when you first heard about it? Well, I've only learned languages in situ. You know, you go to the bakery, and you have to order bread. And if you don't say it right, you don't get it. <laughs> Yeah, there's something about embodiment of that, right? Your yeah. body then gets the bread. You smell the bread. You 
have the interaction with the person. They smile at you. You smile at them. And right. well, I don't know from France, they don't smile at you, but um, you smile at them and look like a stupid American. And that whole thing is a full body experience, not just an intellectual, oh, bread is, what's bread in Spanish? In Spanish? Yeah. Pan. Pan? Oh, yeah. okay. Makes sense. I there, there, there's that. a lot of overlaps between French where it's pan. Yeah. And it's almost spelled the same way and pan. So, yeah. yeah. So I kind of get that it would make more sense in space, in the space. Also, you like you want to have desires to then be able to speak. Like there's an emotional component of speaking. And when you're sitting at your computer, I guess the gamification has some emotion to it. Uh, oh, well, I, it's that, that's why I think it's I'm, I'm still a little skeptical about whether or not this is going to work or not. <laughs> <laughs> Even in 102 days, you're still skeptical. Well, well, uh, you know, pan. Right. Exactly. <laughs> But, uh, you know, when I first moved to France, I lived with a friend, and um, the first couple of days, he cut me some slack and went out and got the bread himself. But after, like, the day three, Gilles said, no, you go across the street, you get the bread. So I went across the street, and we lived in, he lived in this neighborhood, mostly of immigrants. And so all the guys running the bakery were like Turkish. And so, you know, I went in and said, may I have some bread? Or I, I said what I thought sounded like, may I have some bread? And, um, you know, they were all they were all recent immigrants, so they just recently re- learned French themselves. And so they just laughed at me. They said, say it again, say it again. <laughs> <laughs> so is that bad, huh? And so... Um, so, you know, on the one hand, that's really uncomfortable. But on the other hand, like you actually learn, right? Because you've got like, yeah. to get there. Yeah. You've got to get yeah. to the place. There's and of course, none they of actually that. probably, they also probably understood you when you said it, even though right. they did it wrong. They well, got it. And, you, and you knew there was sympathy underneath it, right? Because right. they'd just gone through this themselves. Right. So and they were just giving a hard time, but they'd just been through that hard time. So Right. And also and from a, fun. we're going to talk about competitive nature at some point, but also from a competitive perspective in some ways, the next day when you went down to do bread, you'd do it better. Right. Right. And those guys would be like, yeah, <laughs> you get all that feedback. I'm like, people, yeah, you're doing it. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So there's none of that. Right. Right. In fact, you know, there's people, but they're just stats. They're right. not even, they don't even right. names. Right. Right. But. I, this is really well done, this Duolingo. They're constantly putting stuff, you know, in subsequent questions in a given lesson. They'll, like, make you really think about similarities and differences. So the word for, like, sponge and mirror in Spanish are very close. And so they'll, they'll mix they? it up. Uh, I don't know if I can even say that. <laughs> That's another thing. Stage fright, right? Stage fright of all this. Because how do you get over that? I've spent a lot of time now just saying it. So I I know I can say it, okay? But I don't actually have any human experience with that. Right. And the funny thing is if you said it wrong, I wouldn't know because I don't speak Spanish. Right. And then I'd put it out on the podcast and people would be like, oh, he's not even doing it right. (laughs) Your son, my sister would totally thrash us. Right. Exactly. Exactly. So I ask my son a lot because he's he's taken a lot of Spanish, as have your kids, and um, that's helpful. That gives me some of that. But just with the app per se, you don't get it. But intellectually, it's really well designed, right? There's making all these comparisons. 
um, between things that are really close. There's homonyms like pero and pero, like dog and butt. And, yeah. You know. And the sponge and the mirror thing of having them very similar words. The thing that's helping, they know that there's similarities here that people have mistakes on. So they're making mm-hmm. sure that you're aware of that similarity so that you can get the mental model of, oh, this means mirror. This means sponge. Yeah. And that will help you over time. Right. Without that, you could get surprised that that would happen and it would be hard. I don't know. I think they're very canny about organizing your memory for all these things. Yeah. You're getting, Yeah, you're, you're, they're pointing out those similarities and differences and stuff. It does have pronunciation detection. Can you get that wrong? I mean, how do they know? How do they know that you're pronouncing it right? It's not I don't, person, know, I don't it? know how good it is. Yeah. I, I don't yeah. know how good it is. Right. You know, I, I seem to get through the pronunciation just fine. Um, I think that, uh, I, well, they, they do that pretty well. Every time, so they'll, they'll give you a, a sentence to pronounce. Every time you say a word in the sentence, it goes a different color. Mm. And if you skip something or you get it wrong, it stays the first color. Okay. And so then to get through the whole thing, you have to go back and say all the things that you said incorrectly. You had to say them correctly, and eventually you get yeah, through. Yeah, that's good. But there's some combination of, like, maybe the software is a little too lenient, or sometimes there's some network lag, and so you didn't actually say it wrong, but it didn't get it. And so I, I, don't, I don't actually yeah. know how well that's working. I recall that experience of the pronunciation thing always being the trickiest for me, because it, it felt like... Getting, you know, written with multiple choice, you know when it's wrong, you get it because there's another choice there. But in spoken, you're kind of like, well, did you not hear me or did I not pronounce it right? Or is the software broken? I always felt that way about yeah. it. I was questioning whether it was really true that I got it wrong because then I would come up again. I'm like, okay, I'm going to do it exactly the same. Then I get it right. I'm like, I don't think I'm saying it differently. So it's, it's tricky. Um, well, I, I think this is this is part of the, the lack of the social context, right? If you go to the bakery and you ask for what you think is the word for bread, and you get the bread, you know, well, that was adequately pronounced, <laughs> right? Right. <laughs> if the little line right, lights up all the things as green, you're like, well, maybe it was adequate. Right. You exactly. don't know. But yeah. and, and you're also going to get feedback, right? Sure, you're really... Um, I have some very kind friends in France who even after speaking French for 30 years, I'll make a mistake, and they'll, like, point it out to me. But you get to a certain point where... It has to be a very f- special friend that's going to do that <laughs> because most people are just like, I didn't understand that. I don't know what he said. I'm not going to say anything. Right, that's, right. That's sort that's of the way good. it works. Yeah. But you don't, you don't have that, – that's why also it's better. Um, you know, I, I learned Norwegian when I was 14 and you automatically at that age have like a whole cohort of tutors. right. Everybody wants to teach you the dirty words. They think that's hilarious to teach the foreigner all the dirty words. Right. Right. And they'll work with you constantly. All of the kids will work with you right. constantly. Adults aren't like that. Adults are like either they understand you or like. Right. It's okay to correct a 14 year old and give yeah. them guidance. It's especially okay if you're another 14 year old. Yeah, especially. But if you're, you know, just, you know, somebody, it's not polite to correct them. Like right. as adults. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So you're kind of at the right age in that regard. I'm sure that's not the only reason. I'm sure it's also about. How our brains work. How's your brain working? 102 days. Do you feel almost, uh, you know, can you give up English now? <laughs> I, I, I notice now 
if I'm listening to Spanish, that I understand a lot more than I did before. That's good. Yeah. Are you watching any TV or anything in Spanish? For the not, yet. No? Okay. not yet. No. Because that's easy to do with, you know, closed caption in English. Yeah, no, that's, that's that. for French and Norwegian, I, I listen to podcasts and, or like the news or something like not that. Not with closed captions. Not with podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. And that, I think it's very, very useful. Mm-hmm. But, you know, if if you're just a beginner in the language, I think it's just a blur. Yeah. I mean, a, a vocal blur, but a blur nonetheless. Is the gamification working? Like, does that help you get motivated? Is that why you've done 102 days straight? I think I've, I think I do 102 days straight because my phone is keeping track and I do actually think about, oh, I haven't done anything today. I should go on so that I don't break my streak. Um, so that I guess that's where the gamification works. The other place where, where it works is um, you're put into these groups of 30 and you can see how many points everyone else in your group has gotten. So you can say, oh, am I slacking off or am I actually just kind of in the middle of the pack? Or it sounds like competition. It's a little competition, but it's also just, um, you know, if you're a long distance runner and you're just always running by yourself, you don't know whether you're having a good day or a bad day or whatever. You're just out there running along. But if you're always running with a group of people, they help you set the pace so it's 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 a form of reflection on how well you're doing yeah it it helps set the pace right i think it does this is what i thought we're going to finish our conversation with i thought we were just going upstairs for half an hour to talk about duolingo and warren's experience and so we've talked about that and now we're going to talk about other things for another hour and a half and i just want to invite you to think about what you're doing right now maybe listening to this is exactly what you want to be doing And that's great. And I appreciate that you listened this far. That's fantastic. But I do want to invite you to take a pause and figure out what you might want to do other than this. This, you know, is enlightening and interesting and engaging. Obviously, you wouldn't be listening to it. But there are a lot of other things you could be doing. If you keep listening to the podcast, you'll get a a feeling for what Warren thinks are three crucial pieces to learning. And I think they're great. And one of the things he says, spoiler is that technology has nothing to do with those three. And in my thoughts in the last week, in two weeks, three weeks, well, has it been three weeks? Is that consuming all the time doesn't give you necessarily an opportunity to think. So I'm jumping in here to give you the possibility of not listening to the rest of this and thinking for the next hour and a half. Or pick up Duolingo and try a new language. See what it's like. So it's not an endorsement to the product, but the point is, There are a lot of things you could do right now with your time and energy. And creating and learning are things that are pretty great. I think this conversation is pretty great. And that's why I'm putting the whole thing on here. So please do enjoy. Here's the rest of my conversation with Warren. Thank you for being so kind to do this with me. (laughs) I don't know what we're talking about. It's because I cooked you chili, I guess. Just just some random conversation (laughs) we're having after dinner. Hopefully someone will be interested in I this. Was, <laughs> I was, I mean, all day I've been thinking I've got to do another episode today because this whole everyday episode. And then when you guys were coming over, I'm like, okay, I'll interview, I'll interview Jennifer if she's up for it. And then it was clearly she was too tired to do it. And then we're sitting here talking about this language. Like, just because this is the kind of stuff you and I talk about when we talk. 
<laughs> I was like, how's Spanish doing? And pretty soon I'm like, we got to go upstairs because I need to do this. So thank you for doing that. And I feel bad about putting you on spot about Louis von Ahn and such because I actually know that you've read a lot about this stuff because of your profession. And so kind of poking at somebody without being prepped, I feel is not appropriate thing to do to an academic. So thank you very much for being, being okay <laughs> with that and just being friendly about it. Um, but Jennifer was saying, your wife, Jennifer, was saying that it's, you're, you like it because it's a competitive and you're competitive. Now, I agree that you're more competitive than Jennifer, but would you call yourself a competitive person? I think anybody who is a professor has a competitive streak about academic things. I don't know how you get through it. Otherwise, you have to enjoy that part. Although maybe Jennifer, my wife, who's also a professor, is an exception to that. But uh, I, I think that, yeah, it's just, you know, you want to get, you want to get a good grade, even, even at, at my age, right? Even when you're not Which taking is classes. kind of pathetic, I suppose. <laughs> well, pathetic or not, it's how you got where you are, right? Yeah. I mean, you had to do well. But there's also the, you want your book to sell well. You want people to quote you. You want to be asked to do the professional gigs. All those things you can think about them as competition if you have that mental state about it. Well, I, th I think, right, the, the job of a professor, you're constantly being evaluated, right? You send in papers for a review or you're reviewing someone else's papers. Um, you're sending grant proposals for review. Uh, you're going up for promotion every couple of years. So you're being reviewed, Um Assessed. It's constantly, it's constantly that, you know. I think if you're just a student for a, a certain amount of time in your life, you feel like, well, okay, I'm done with that. Now the real world is whether or not my company takes off or something like right, that. Right, right. But uh, it's the different. world of professors is really other people assessing your work constantly. It's also kind of lonely in a sense, even if you are someone that works with a team and stuff. In a job situation, I could go work at a company. If the company does well, my career improves. Like mm -hmm. in some ways, it doesn't really matter if it's me specifically. It's kind of coincidentally lucky and all those natures. And, you know, the output of a group of people doing stuff, most of the time, if you're in that group and it's going well, you kind of get the credit for that as well. Mm -hmm. In academia, it feels like it's a little bit different. Your, your name has to be on that paper. Like you, you have to be involved in the things that you do. It's not like just because you work at UCSC, if you, something amazing happens at UCSC, it, it really helps your career directly. Is that true? I, I'd imagine it's, I mean, I played sports in high school, but I never got beyond that. But I'd imagine that's, it's the way it is in sort of professional sports or something, you know? Yeah. Yeah, you can be on a good team, but like you don't, you don't get the headlines if you're not the one who made the score. They drop the weak players. I think that's, I think people conceptually think about business that way, that, you know, you get, you have the good people move up and stuff. But I think in practical sense, that does not really happen. I think people that move up in business spaces are much more, are better about selling themselves. I think they're more, they're more arrogant and they're better at like pitching and they're better at playing this kind of uh, game in the system rather than necessarily being good at their job. And maybe by definition, that is their job to move up in the corporate ladder. Uh -huh. But in academia, your job really is to discover new ways of thinking. That's hard to fake. <laughs> do, you, do you think there's some people that are faking it or leaning too much on their grad students? Well, there's different kinds of 
work that needs to get done as a professor. And so a lot of uh, being a professor is like showing up, showing up on time and like doing <laughs> shoveling shit or whatever it is that you need to be doing. Yeah. Um, so I, I think there's a tendency to think, well, it's all about thinking or something like that. Yeah. Um, but and and it's also the case that if you're if you're too smart, you don't do very well in academia. Like if you're way smarter than everybody else, they don't like you. <laughs> because the competition is such that you're you're making them look bad? Yeah. Do you know people that made you look bad or are you the one that makes other people look bad? No, I've just I've had some of I think some of my most brilliant friends have had terrible experiences in academia because like they were too smart. Come on, that doesn't make any sense. Well, there there's two things that the job doesn't really work very well for. One is like if you can't just do the day to day nine to five, show up, put in the hours, like do the work. So there's there's a lot of people who just feel like, well, I don't have to do that. Yeah, well, you kind of do. <laughs> Got it. Because ultimately, there's a lot of people. If you're a professor. You have a lot of students, you have a lot of staff, you have a lot of colleagues who are depending upon you to do that work. And the work is not just really smart. It's like yeah. reviewing, you know, your your student's paper or something right. like that. And um, and so people who can't do the, the really mundane parts of it, they don't do very well. And do you think that brilliant people can't, brilliant people have difficulty doing mundane things? Well, I, I think sometimes... Uh, Sometimes they're too challenging. They're they're too challenging. Like they don't get the job in the first place. It's incredibly competitive, right? I mean, to get a professor job right now at a research university, um, we just had a job opening in the I don't know one of the humanities departments on campus, and they got for for two openings. I I think they had four hundred applicants, right? So, Whoa! So that's you know if. If you're in a competition where uh, you have to be the top four, two out of four, yeah, that's that's right. pretty high. It's, it's, Point five percent. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so getting getting a job in academia oftentimes is a one in a hundred yeah. kind of competition. That's this is this is kind of more than usual, but um, that's not that unusual odds. Yeah. Um, and so the when you get um. In a job applicant pool that's that big, there's a whole bunch of people who are perfectly good, right? But they're going to go then with the person who's not just qualified, but also who um, who fits in with with the other people there. You mm. know, they're they're assessing what do I want to have lunch with this person mm. for the next twenty years of my life, right? <laughs> And that's I've so just much, I've like. I've just had some friends who who are too brilliant, their ideas are too radical, um, that they're too challenging to what other people are doing. They're not going to get the job. Wouldn't it's you awful. say if if you asked <laughs> all the people that were actually involved in the hiring of these people mm-hmm. that they would want that brilliant person, or are they are these people making these decisions? blind to the fact that this is a potentially a bad decision because it's rating on whether they want to have them as a, a lunch person versus have them change some major school of thought? Or do you think that it's, like, do you think it's subconscious or conscious? 
I think it's usually unconscious. Mm -hmm. But I've also been on hiring committees where I've heard people be very conscious about that. Really? And they're like yeah. justification is I don't want to deal with this person every day? Yeah. I mean, I get it. At some level, there's a motivation for that, right? You have also, it's very hard to collaborate with somebody that's difficult to work with. And sometimes you want collaboration. You definitely want collaboration to run a school. Well, I, I, I understand difficult to work with, but I mean, I've heard people say things like, well, this person's too much of a star. They're not going to do the mundane work. So we're not going to, we don't want them. Meaning more or less, like, this person doesn't make me look good, right? <laughs> or this person is going to make me do a lot of work that's not going to let my, me study my field because I have to make sure I run the, the committee meetings and stuff. Yeah, then they're yeah. not going to run them. I mean, there's some yeah. practicality to that, too. It might drag other people down. But I, I don't know if that's always a fair assessment, right? Absolutely. Because it, it doesn't mean just because you're brilliant doesn't mean that you won't do the, the dogged, like, <laughs> mundane, everyday work. Yeah. But I think sometimes people think, well, they're too smart. They're not going to do that. Or they're too smart. They're going to make me look bad. That's sad. It's sad. Yeah. This is kind of, I mean, I guess we're talking, we're touching kind of on the problem with tenure. Why is tenure so important? What is tenure, Warren? Um, it's uh, right before 11 year, I guess. What? <laughs> nice. Very um, punny of you, sir. Very punny. Uh, right. So uh, professor jobs are one of the few left where you, after you've been through a trial period, you have permanent employment unless you do something that's illegal or grossly unethical. Yeah. Yeah. So um, – the trial period for a research university is usually um, six or seven years. So you... This is assistant professorship. Right. So you, you did your K through 12, and then you did your four years at college. Now you're at 16 years. Undergraduate, right? Undergraduate. Now you're, after that, you're going to be in graduate school for six, seven, eight years. In fact, the, the norm right now from the beginning of grad school to the end of grad school is 10 years. That's to get your PhD. That's to get your PhD. And that's that's just the norm if you go across uh, all of the different degree types in the United States and look at that. So if you're in a field like chemistry where you probably get a research assistantship, that means you'll get paid to do your research every quarter. Um, then you'll probably finish in six years. But if you're, let's say, in a field like education, where you're going to have to teach all the time, it might take you 12 to finish. Um, so, okay, so you've just did 16 plus, let's say, let's be optimistic, six more years. So you've been in school for 22 years. Then oftentimes there's some kind of liminal position. Maybe you get a postdoc or something like that. Then you get another one, so you're 23 years. And now you've got a trial period that starts now and goes for the next seven years. At one institution. At one institution. And um, at the end of that, they decide, yes, you can keep your job, or no, you can't. Now, if they say, no, you can't, that's a little more dire than, no, you can't have this job. It means, really, you didn't get tenure at this institution, so nobody else wants you either. Oh, Wow. No one else is going to give you a chance. Yeah. Because you could get and tenure. And to be clear, in that seven-year window, what you have to do is teach, 
be supporting the campus by committee and other meetings, things like that, to help run the, the organization. And you also have to do your own research, pr- publishing enough, quote, publishing depends on the discipline, but right. effectively publishing probably a book. Um, enough of that publication and public speaking and other things that you're noticeable in your field from a set of peers. And you're doing that regularly. And that's the thing you were talking about earlier about uh, moving up. What's that called? Uh, getting paid better. Promotion. Promotion. This is promotion. Pr- promotion. Right. So you're being tested the entire time. Yeah. So, um, and the the review comes both, it's both an internal review. When you get to tenure, it's an internal review. That is a, um, your department, your division. Your you know, colleagues the, directly. The, the upper level administration all has a say about whether or not you should get. But then what they do, which I think really freaks people out who are not in academia is that they just send your work out to between five and eight um, well-known people in your field and say, is this person's work worth tenure? You don't necessarily know them. They write you a letter completely anonymously. I mean, anonymous to you or anonymous to the the, the Uh, institution? No, anonymous to you. Okay. The institution knows who they're because they go they go, and they get the most well known people they can in your field. So this means if you've written your book or the papers you've done, those things are sent off to these people, mm-hmm. and they're theoretically people that you would admire in the field. They're yeah. well known people, and they give a, a thumbs up, thumbs down to you, and you don't know who those people are, that's and right. that decides if you're going to move forward or, or get tenure or not. That's right. Yeah, that sounds a little intimidating. <laughs> So obviously you're a tenure professor and you've been a tenure professor for, I don't know, 10 years or eight years, maybe? How long have you been tenure? How long have you been tenure? Ten, about 10 years. Yeah. yeah. Um, okay. So what you're saying is that, sure, having tenure, um, it takes a long time to get there. It's a very proven thing that you, you should have tenure in the sense that you have to at least do pretty well for 30 years. <laughs> Wait. So I, I was just trying to communicate how much is on the line. It's yeah. all of this years of, of schooling. And then your your trial period, so to speak. And then if you don't get it, it's a complete career disaster, right? Oh, I see. If you're an associate professor and you don't get your tenure assistant step. Assistant professor. Assistant professor. And you don't get your step into tenure, that's it academically. No one else will take you? Yeah. You're totally or probably? You could probably get some adjunct teaching here and there or something. But you no. You're just you're not an academic anymore? You're just done. You have to find something else to do usually. Do you know anybody that's have that's happened to? Yeah, friends. Yeah. Ouch. Yeah. Did you try to help them before that happened? Uh, this yeah, isn't fair, of course, because I know who we're, I'm thinking of somebody that I know that <laughs> happened to, and it just it yeah, still shocks me. Um, so some institutions, like the University of California, pretty much runs the filter um, at hiring time, so they're not going to hire you at the University of California unless they think they can get you through tenure successfully. So uh, on our campus, it rarely happens. It's not to say it doesn't happen. Because you I kind of hire several somebody. people who it, okay. they did not get tenure. Yeah. But I think, you know, most people get tenure. Well, the truth is that first hiring to assistant has 200 people hiring for one position. So right. you're most likely going to get somebody that's going to do well, right? Because right. you're like, well, can they do well? Yeah, it makes sense. Right. And, and But there are other campuses uh, – or other universities where they don't do that filtering. They just they pick somebody. They think, oh, this person looks good right now. Um, hopefully, they figure it out. Their rate of tenuring people is much lower, and so uh, then it's just awful. 
in the the Ivy Leagues, there there didn't used to be tenure track jobs, so there was no guarantee, right, at all that you would get tenure, and most people didn't. What do you mean there weren't tenure tracks? Meaning that you could get hired, you'd be a professor, you'd be a professor for a long time, you'd never be offered a position of tenure? Yeah. And in the university system that we're talking about, UC system, for example, when you're hired as assistant, you step into a ladder that will take you to tenure or right. debut. You go, you, go yeah. up, you go up the ladder, right? And the ladder has very specific kind of requirements. And every time you go up for uh, a raise or a promotion... Like there's certain requirements and you have to put together a packet. You say, and you're aware okay. of what they are, those requirements. Yeah. And you you know like when they're going to be asking other people for letters and things like that. The old system at like Yale, for example, was that um, you'd been teaching for a few years and your department would, unbeknownst to you, put together a group of your papers, send them out to the most well-known people in the country and their their criteria at that time so this was like you know 20 years ago and before their criteria at that time was is this person the world expert in their field <laughs> and if they were like you you, you'd deal. show up you'd show up at at your office one day and they'd say hey you're a full professor congratulations <sighs> but you you didn't even know what was happening well i mean you might have suspected something but you, you weren't a part of that whole process right wow and those people actually didn't do so poorly, usually. I, I knew a bunch of people who never got tenure at Harvard, but that it wasn't a bad mark on their... Right. They're still a professor at Harvard. <laughs> well, they, they were a professor at Harvard, but they'd have to leave at that point. Oh, they would when they oh, did yeah. the review because they right. decided to put them up for tenure. But oh, then like wow. the University of Michigan or uh, Indiana University or something, totally they say, here, right. you know, University of California say, here, here's, here's your... Here's your tenure. Right. 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 They'd offer it right off the bat. So yeah. that's the thing that can happen is if even if you're a tenure at a university like UCSC for example, right. where you are a tenured professor, some other campus might say, hey, we'll go give you a tenure too right away. You don't have to go through this whole process. You've already been vetted. We want you to work with us. Come aboard and you'll have tenure instantly. Well, they this, do that kind of thing? This, this is where you know, the informal and formal ranking of universities come into play. So um, if you don't get tenure at UC Santa Cruz, you're not going to get tenure at any of the peer institutions, um, but you might get a job at a much lower-ranked university. If your lifestyle was such that it was easy to move around, you didn't have kids, you wouldn't settle down, whatever, and Yale said to you, hey, come drop your tenure and come work with us. We're not going to give you tenure, but come work for us as a professor. Would that be a career suicide move or that be a good thing for you? Um, well, it depends on who you are, but I mean, we both actually know someone who that happened to. Who did that happen to? And she, she moved to Yale. Who? Yeah. <laughs> You'll tell me later? Yeah. <laughs> she moved yeah. to Yale. Yeah. So, and she didn't get, uh, this, whoever this was, she didn't get um, a tenure position at Yale. She just got offered a position at Yale. Yeah. And it's very stable. Okay. And she decided to do it anyway because mm -hmm. it's Yale. Yeah. <laughs> and that's where she did her graduate degree. And, yeah. Yeah. What are the problems with tenure? I mean, I know it's hard to get into, but I brought this question up as like, it seems like people aren't hiring colleagues because it might look bad for them. That seems to be a flaw in that the institution should be trying to get the best people possible for the institution. So is that a problem with tenure? Or is that just a problem with egotism? I think that's probably, I mean, I, I have very limited experience outside of academia, but I'd imagine that's the same anywhere. Um, 
you know, you've got to pretty, be a pretty brave soul to hire somebody who's twice as smart as you. Well, it depends on what you think it means to have someone around you that's smarter than you. Exactly. Whether it's negative to you or positive to you. The times when I've been really impressed with people, I want to spend more time with them, uh-huh. even if they look better than me. That's fine okay. because it feels like I still have the opportunity to learn from them and grow. Right. So it really comes down to, in my mind, in a simplistic way, it depends on your perspective on whether you can still grow and be better. So, but maybe that's my judgment on people well, denying I, intelligent people to I, join I them. I think you're probably one of those people who can hire people that's that are smarter than you. I, I feel like I'm one of those people. Um, Has that I, happened? Have, have colleagues have joined the film department with you that are smarter than you? Oh, yeah. Like, okay. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so funny. You have to wait on that one. Oh, yeah. We've got some really smart people there. <laughs> um, that's, well, no. So that's uh, good. So you were happy oh, that yeah. happened. Oh, no. It's, it's fantastic, right? But I think that it, it's, it's not for everybody, right? Because, yeah, it's... Uh, you you have to up your own game. Yeah, I think that's the whole right. point of it, right? Well, you've got to be gamed up your up your game. Yeah, right? yeah, it's hard if if yeah. you're not if you're not if you want to just keep doing what you've been doing, and you hire somebody that's smarter than you. That can be hard. Yeah. <laughs> so I guess the thing is, I don't think tenure has anything to do with this in the sense that having tenure means you're not going to lose your job, even if a really smart person comes in and kind of shames you into like if if it were such a situation where you would start looking really bad and couldn't cut the mustard and all those things your tenure is going to protect your job it just means you won't move up the ladder necessarily but that's right so tenure probably has nothing to do with that problem with of the hiring situation why doesn't why don't universities do a hiring the same way they do ladder rank uh assessment where they have other universe other institutions check and decide who gets in who gets in where? Okay. So what you're saying is, let's say you, there's an open rec for University of California, Santa Cruz uh-huh. for a professor. And the meeting of people join around. They're talking about, well, should we this? Well, this person's really, you know, kind of brilliant. They're going to be like, make me look really bad. That problem could be solved if the hiring committee for that position was not run by the colleagues, but was run by just like you assess the person in their field. You ask other people outside the University of California to hire that position. Give us the best person possible and assess. Oh, yeah. No, we have, I think, improved the hiring process on our campus so that we do actually hi- ask people from other departments to participate in the hiring committee. In direct part departments. I see. Right. right. So they're not competition. So, yeah, it makes right. sense. So they're not people who are going to be sitting next to that person that they're hiring. And they can be a little bit more objective. Yeah. Um, that makes sense. And I think that that's, um, in fact, that's that's where I've... Uh, you know, um, I've never heard from my department these kinds of, oh, my God, I don't want to hire somebody yeah. smarter than me. But I have heard it from other departments where I have been one of those outside committee members. Ah, okay? I see. Interesting. Okay, so cool. I, I think that, you know, you you do um, increase your your collective intelligence by in including more people in that committee, um, you also simply buy, well, when you apply for these jobs, you ask for letters from the applicant as well, Mm -hmm. letters of recommendation. And so um, you also get an assessment from lots of different things. Yeah, that makes sense. Do you think there's any downside to tenure? So 
when I finished my PhD, I got uh, a job offer from academia. It's at the University of California, Berkeley. Um, and then I also got a job offer from a very well-respected industry research lab from Xerox Park. Really? I didn't know that. Yeah. So I had the job offer. Why didn't you go to Xerox Park? <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. Okay. So this, this <laughs> That's is a hard one. I'm, man. Just, I'm, just, I'm just trying to um, just trying to dramatize or personalize this situation. So I had a job. Now, people should know that Xerox Park is a research institution, right? So I wasn't going to be doing something radically different um, if I went there than if I went to Berkeley because that's what they pay you to do is they pay you to do research. But they would have paid you radically different. The offer from Xerox Park was exactly twice the salary of the Berkeley salary. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Private sector, man. (laughs) So the, 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 the question is without tenure, why would I ever, as I did, why would I ever choose Berkeley? Because it's Berkeley. I mean, I mean, just as much as Xerox Park is Xerox Park. By the way, Xerox Park like brought us the mouse, so like it's it's kind of important. <laughs> a few other things. Too. <laughs> I'm, I'm just I'm giving an example of some how ridiculously important uh, Xerox Park has been. I have no idea what it would have been like to go to Xerox Park twelve years ago versus Berkeley, um, but I'm sure it was compelling. Why do you make the decision? Because of tenure. Well, there's there's a couple things. One is tenure. Right. So uh, I've I've since had um, a bunch of uh, colleagues and also uh, students, Ph.D. students of mine who've finished with me and then gone on to work at Xerox Park. It's a good place to work. It's a great place to work. Um, But you don't have a guaranteed job. Um, And also uh, you. You know, you have I mean, the, the plus and minus as, as well around academia is that you have a nine-month contract. So a lot of people don't understand this. It's professors are only paid nine months a year. Yeah, you've got summers off in quotes, but you're not getting paid, okay? <laughs> it's, it's, like, it's like that for high school teachers right, too, right? right. You, you're not getting a paycheck. We actually do get a paycheck because they take our nine-month salary, cut it into 12, and give us a twelfth of it, everything. So they hang on to our money. They, bless their hearts. Um, <laughs> That way, absent from professors don't lose their housing, right. yeah, <laughs> or whatever. Um, and uh, but you know, you are not, and and you do have to actually work pretty hard in the summers. But you don't have any formal meetings, right? You have to work really hard because you get evaluated on your research, and that's when you that's have time when to you do, actually yeah, have yeah. time to do it. The even though you're doing the um, the. Tenure thing. I mean, the tenure track, and you're going to get paid and all that. The pay is always going to be lower than in the private sector. I mean, you, sure, it's locked in, but it's like the the as you go up in the private sector, it, assuming that you achieve that, your salary is probably always going to be higher than the equivalent years of time at a university, right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's but, not bad pay necessarily, but it's not. So it's it's know. the combination of things. I mean, the University of California has a great uh, defined benefit retirement plan, so. Um, you can make less because you're not saving for retirement necessarily. Right. You don't have to. Yeah. I think um, when I was there, if you worked till 65 and you worked at least 20 years, your salary was like 90%. Your your salary for the rest of your life was 80 or 90% of what your ending salary was. Yeah, a large. Which is amazing for a retirement plan, right? It's basically right. the same salary indefinitely. 
So it, it's 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 not just tenure; it's all these other benefits. But if I'd been facing that choice and Berkeley hadn't been able to offer these these other things, tenure, you know, uh, summers, un, unprogrammed summers, let's just put it that way, mm-hmm. um, sabbatical, right? You get a sabbatical every seven years. Um, you get a, a year, year off to, to do your research. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, or have a baby to better that to do. Have a baby. Um <laughs> you can um yeah, yeah. retirement benefits, retirement all, benefits. All these things. If, if there there's no there there wouldn't be any reason to go into the education space. No. Well now there's one other thing that you're not there's one other piece. And I think this is probably the most the, the biggest reason of knowing you, <laughs> this is probably the biggest reason to pick the Berkeley job, the academic job versus the Xerox Park job. No one's going to tell you what you're going to research. And and it's prestigious. You're a professor yeah. at, a, at a really amazing university. Not Berkeley. Turns out you switched over to UC Santa Cruz. But um, that's isn't that a big part of your motivation? Well, I think also, yeah, I... I the people that I know at Xerox Park, they don't. They have a boss, but not really. Oh, okay. They kind of do their own they research. They kind of do. They kind of have a boss. Um, but in academia, you really do not have a boss. And right. A lot of people come from industry, and then they, they become professors. They really have a hard time getting their head around that. Yeah. They don't understand, for example, the dean is not their boss. Right. They can just tell the dean to go take a walk. <laughs> they don't have to listen to them. They could just leave. Right, no one's going to fire them. Right, who's going to fire them? Yeah, right? they, you you can't get fired. It's a very different position. Yeah. to really not have a boss. And then, and so I I would say, especially for for me, I'm just I'm not good with bosses. So that that was probably smarter. <laughs> well, the other thing about the Xerox Park place is, sure, you don't really, you know, you kind of don't have a boss, but you really do. And if you don't perform, you know, you're not going to stay there. Yeah. But the, the other thing about the Xerox Park is that you've got to go there with this idea that you're going to produce something that will translate into some kind of sellable thing within a certain period of time. If you're doing research that is not easily financeable or you know, it, mm-hmm. it doesn't translate into some kind of economic reason to do it, it's not really the kind of work that needs to be done there, right? Isn't right. that kind of – so you have to be in the minds – and lots of people love to do research around making something that is – turns into capital. Like that's not, it's a pretty right. compelling thing to do. Uh, I lots of time am thinking about side projects that would actually then turn into a business. That's not a, a bad thing necessarily. But in an academic setting, that's not your primary goal, which is kind of nice to not have the, the industrialization of ideas as part of your goal. I mean, the, the other thing that really struck me, because I, I, it wasn't just at Xerox Park, I had some other offers as well. And what really struck me, especially about high-tech companies, is that, you know, they can be really good at what they do. But they don't have, like if you even move the field slightly off their target, they don't have any expertise in-house, right? So if I need to, to know something about moral philosophy and robotics, like I can't find that in the same company but i can find it in the same university right university the reason it's called a university is because it's universal it means that everything's under the same roof that is the whole point of university is everybody of every different discipline is there 
And so you end up with entirely different cross-disciplinary, interdisciplinary possibilities. Can't be other, uh, otherwise. Um, and this this is very striking right now in Silicon Valley, where, for example, AI is being applied in all these situations where there's there's moral consequences, right? Mm-hmm. And um, a lot of the Silicon Valley companies have legal teams, so they can tell you whether or not it's legal to do this or that, but they can't tell you whether it's moral or even how to think about what it's moral. What's right. moral, right? That's so why we see so many mistakes in that space. <laughs> well, th- there's there's a lot of people who would like to be able to do ethical AI, right? But who in house actually knows anything about ethics? Right. Like it's uh, something that philosophy's been studying for a long time, and it's not. Um, it's not something it's, you just like build a little team. They don't even try to build a little team usually. No, they just try to think. Well, obviously, doing right or wrong is just a. Everybody can figure that out. <laughs> Which, if you have studied anything about ethics, you know is not true. Like we actually are really bad about doing things ethical. And right. if you think that's not true, there are really great mind studies about this that make it that yeah, we're really unethical creatures instinctually. Like you will help a child in the street, absolutely, if they're starving. You'll pick them up and help them. But if you know of a child across the world, well, you also will feel like you need to do something about them. You'll do something. But if you know about 100 children in that situation, you won't do anything about it because emotionally we can't correlate that. Even though we know ethically it's better to help 100 kids starving than one kid starving, even if they're one's close to you and one's far away. It's just that's not how our brains work. So our instincts about ethics is wrong all the time. We're just bad at it. <laughs> yeah, so the, there, there's all these... Um problems which you know you could term as technical problems because they've been worked through for thousands of years they have their own vocabularies they have all the touchstone problems and um but they don't register as technical problems to the the technical people in silicon valley yeah, right? yeah. because it's not an engineering this seems important warren why don't you talk about this oh that's right you've written a whole <laughs> book about it <laughs> Kind of laying that out, right? But I, I, I think that that was one thing that really struck me is, um, you know, so one of the things that I do is I'm an artist, right? And it became very clear to me that if I would have accepted one of the industry jobs, yeah, I could be an artist on the side, on the side, right? Um, yeah, but that couldn't be your profession. You're a professional artist, but I, I, I couldn't. Yeah, it couldn't be a part of my professional life, really. Yeah, yeah. Right. And and the having colleagues of that kind of caliber and everything you're curious about. Like being part of the university, it's one of the things I miss about the university is that uh-huh. you if you wanted to go listen to a lecture about anything you want, anything that caught your fancy, you could. And you could dive pretty deep there and you could find people to talk about those topics right. with. Right. It's pretty amazing to be in that space. If Yale offered you a job, would you take it? You know, I I feel like I have uh, because I was an undergraduate at Yale. I I have this. There's this part of me that wants to give back to that. Yeah. And um, it's funny. I was just having. I was just corresponding with a, a Yale professor this morning. Um, there's some really interesting people there. I don't know. I I, I would feel. I would at least feel. Um, like I'd have to consider such a thing just because 
I was an undergraduate there, and they gave me an awful lot. See, it's so funny, Warren. My aunt, the reason I asked that question, I didn't even understand it until I asked it and you started answering it. Like, why would I jump to that? Because it's weird to kind of cover the topic. Because I'm kind of trying to poke at this idea of how much of you is motivated by what other people think of you, the prestigious level, versus what's other qualities that you might espouse. Like what you answered there was not about, yeah, that'd be cool. I'd be a Yale professor. It was, well, I kind of would like to give back to those people. I like some people there. Yeah, I'd have to seriously consider. Like it really was about the things that I think you and I would agree are important. How much do you think you're actually motivated by egotism um, versus qualities we might espouse as better? Well, I, I think that really got tested. I guess it was about five years ago now. Both my wife and I were offered jobs at an Ivy League school. And that's really unusual. You don't get a double offer to go be full professors at an Ivy League school somewhere. And um, I remember that offer time and you were talking about it and thinking about it. Yeah. Yeah. And that really required a kind of full accounting of, of everything. And I think, you know, my wife would say something different than I said, but I, I think I initially said yes. Then I said no, basically because we had family requirements that were going to be impossible to do living on the East Coast and commuting to California. But once I did the full assessment of sort of, I guess you'd just call it the 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 cost of the cost of uh, of stature or something like that. Um, you know, when you get right down to it, uh, UC Santa Cruz has better benefits, has better pay, um, has in terms of colleagues like an incredibly and incredible group of people. So, like. From and the outside, friends, you think like, and well, you have friends in Santa Cruz you like, right? I mean, our <laughs> friends, our friends in um, our friends on the East Coast thought we were completely insane. Well, of right? course, if you live on the East Coast, why would you, you of course, come back from the <laughs> Podunk, California, West Coast? Why would you want to be there? <laughs> they exactly. just don't understand. Right. <laughs> no, and and that is that is a very different world, right? If you're at some kind of cocktail party in New York City. Even at this age, you know, late middle age, people say, where did you go to college? Still, yeah. Like, people don't ask that in California. You kind of wish they did more, right? People don't care. (laughs) People don't care. People really care there, right? They really care there. I don't know. So, okay, yes, that's true. That was a test of it. But the reasons you didn't go to this East Coast prestigious school at that time— was not just about whether you'd be a professor at UC Santa Cruz or whether you'd be a professor at this Ivy League school. It was also you already had roots here. You, you had a kid in school. Like you would have had to change and you had family out here. You had to change your life too much to make it actually function. So the desire to go to that school, was it also about prestige or was it also because you'd be able to do different kinds of work there or other things? No, the desire to go to that school was because – Frankly, I would have been a much better fit for me. Yeah. Well, that's the thing that I think about when you were saying that is that they wanted you because you would have fit into a program that would have really been a match. Yeah. Yeah, that's yeah. hard. So it was really for the people. Mm-hmm. Um, I love my department, right? But you most of my ball. department <laughs> at the time was devoted to film. And I'm not a film person, right? I yeah. think it's really interesting. But I'm not. I'm not a film scholar, right? Right. 
The department you're in, of course, is film and digital media. Right. You're the and digital media person. <laughs> well, there's quite a few faculty. After the ampersand. Yeah. <laughs> After the ampersand. So I, I really felt mm-hmm. like the uh, just the, the odd man out yeah. here. In your department. Was... Yeah. And of course, Jennifer wouldn't feel that way in no. her department. It's not like no. that at all. Yeah. No. So the fit of co- of the work or the colleagues that would be doing similar work to you was something like that. Yeah. And of course, that changes over the time too, right? Like sure. That was, what do you say, five years ago? I'm sure it's quite yeah. different now too. Yeah. Yeah. So... Um, so you, so not, not just prestige. I mean, if you, if you, I, well, I would never would have moved from Berkeley to Santa Cruz if it was just about prestige. Either, right. 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 Yeah, sure. I mean, that was also, I felt like, I felt like I had not found the right department at Berkeley. Um, Warren, are you just making these decisions because you love Jennifer? <laughs> <laughs> Don't let her know. <laughs> no, it's, it's, it's really... It's a combination of things, of course, uh, relationship. I mean, we've um, next week we'll, we will have been together for 38 years. So we've been doing this choreography for a long time. Yeah. So um, sometimes in different parts of the world at the same time because that's what's work did. Yeah. yeah. So you, you know, of, of course, if you're, if you're connected, then you're going to coordinate with the other person. But if you're doing it exclusively because of that, you're going to make yourself miserable. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, it's not exclusively that. Yeah. I mean, in all seriousness. Um, you you also, when you went to UC Santa Cruz, there was a little grad program just about to start. And um, so there was a... That's where we met. That's where we met. That's what I was working for. I was the first hire for that little grad program. Um, so there was also potential for a really good fit for your career when you moved from Berkeley. Well, that, um, that that's... Yeah. That's really what motivated that. Um, I was in a department at Berkeley where uh, I was kind of an odd person doing sort of art and philosophy. And other people were mostly economists and computer scientists. And that that was fine. But um, the, you know, the dean there at the time made it really clear to me that I was going to have to change my research program radically in order to actually get tenure. Wow. Okay. Yeah. That's an invitation to so, decide other things. I still am curious what you would have done at, at uh, Xerox Park though. But let me ask you five years ago when the uh, Ivy league offered you the positions, would that, did that department look a lot more like the work you're doing? Like are there colleagues there that look at your book and go, yeah, this is just fits right into what we're doing. Yeah, well, that that department has also changed over the last few years. Oh, my department's changed. Their department's changed. Yeah. Um, Why does it matter if your direct colleagues are like? I mean, your field is such that people are using your book and and um, quoting it and referencing, and you're referencing other people. There are colleagues of yours all over academia, all over the world, and you engage with them, and you sometimes visit them, and you'll do talks for each other. So why is it crucial? Like, why is the actual institution supporting directly? What benefit do you get from there? Grad students? Like, what is it that helps your work progress if you have a department that's more focused around kind of your interests? I, that's, a, that's a really good question because on the face of it, academia is very much built around uh, worldwide networks. Right, I've got very close colleagues 
in widely dispersed places all over the place that are much closer colleagues than anybody that I sit elbow to elbow with um, at Santa Cruz. But if you don't have any rapport with the people that you're sitting with, I mean, it's a very lonely existence. Yeah. Right? I mean, you, you're just by yourself. You're by yourself all the time. Yeah. I mean, or you're not, you're, not, you're not physically by yourself, but you are mentally by yourself yeah. um, in that geographical space that you're, you're constantly elsewhere. I mean, it's the, it's the opposite, I guess, of what kind of practice of meditation is supposed to bring you back to your body here, to the moment now, you know, you're the, I guess, occupational hazard of being a professor is you're always in your head and your head is somewhere else. <laughs> That's amazing. Right? It's That's the, amazing. It's, it's absolutely the opposite of, of the, med- the practice of meditation. Wow. Do you, um, well, I've, I've got to ask you something because I've, I've talked recently, I had recently, I had Quincy Larson on um, this Lunch with Lyle podcast. We've talked, I've talked to him before um, for Geek Speak, but I call him because he has, he's the founder and CEO of Free Code Camp. Do you know Free Code Camp? No, I don't know that one. Okay. So Free Code Camp is a online free university for software engineering and not university in the sense that it's universal, but it's a school. And uh-huh. basically, it's a whole bunch of courses that you set you up to go through software development. And it's rapid feedback uh, learning. So you type something and you know, make the color of the page background different, and you're in HTML, and you change the color, and the page changes automatically. Very much like your research around um, that you and, and a few of your grad students have been working on mm-hmm. in that real-time educational feedback system. And he wrote the software, I don't know, I can't remember how long ago it was, and it's been going, it's getting better and better. And now he's it's fully funded by the students, but by... The store they have, they sell T-shirts and stuff with the logo, and now donors or people are bringing money in. So he does a lot of fundraising. He's got, I think, 31 employees like that uh, working in software and education. Yeah, Yeah. And they're also doing a lot of translations of their work, so you can do it in multiple languages. And the system, we didn't talk technically about how the system works, but do take a look at it. Free Code Camp, it's a pretty neat interface. And I kind of asked him, could you do this with other disciplines rather than software engineering? Because software engineering has this really interesting quality to it because you are writing programs you can write tests to see if those programs work and so you can ask somebody to do something and if they achieve it it passes the test so there's kind of like an automatic check if they got the learning correct uh-huh. kind of like the duolingo thing we were talking about it's kind of hard to do that for real uh unknowns because of course duolingo's answer is multiple choice which kind of works but it doesn't get to the heart of what the bakers were like in France that laughed and kind of played with you and gave you that emotional feedback stuff, right. which we kind of need for language learning. But for software development, being able to write something that actually achieves the goal is a pretty good test and a pretty good way to do feedback. So that system works. And we kind of talked, could you do other things in it? But right now, if someone wanted to be a programmer, if someone wanted to do what I do, it'd be very hard for me to say, go to a four-year university, get a computer science degree. Make sure to take smart courses too while you're there. Um, and then after that, get an internship at one of these companies, tech companies, to, to then learn to program because you're not going to learn a computer science degree. And then after a few years, you'll be in the position I'm in. Or go to Quince, go to Free Code Camp for about six months, then write a little application and then get hired. Like The amount of money difference is massive. And it's hard to say that you'll be a better programmer after the CS degree. I personally think the college experience is a important one though 
So I come to you with this con- this question of make the pitch for a four year four year degree in a liberal arts education um, versus doing something different to right out of high school. I th- I, I think that social media of the last few years has shown us that there's a huge proportion, at least of the U.S. population, that can't judge evidence, that can't evaluate an argument, that can't rigorously think comparatively about anything. You know, if, if one person says one thing, they don't know where to go to find out if there's a contrasting opinion. Or they're apathetic and they don't care to ask that question. Right, right. But um, either of those are problematic. And they don't know, if there's something they don't know, either they don't know that they don't know, or they don't have any idea about how to go about figuring out if that's the case. Or shockingly, they're pleased in some way about not knowing. Yeah. That's the one that really blows my mind. So being complacent or even happy. Yeah. Um, Joyous in not knowing. Yeah. In some way of idealizing idiocy. It's very odd. And, and so I, I, I do think that I, I don't want to be either defeatist or self-aggrandizing in saying this, but I do believe that education is our only way out of this. And this is the situation we're in. We're at the place where we could be on the precipice of political collapse and and uh, an environmental collapse. And if if people don't know how to think about these intractable problems and really pull together with others and make an argument um, in some kind of substantive manner. Like, there's no way out of it. The only way out of it is actually the university. Mm. They're, because they're not getting it. I can tell you, my, my son's in high school. High school doesn't have the chance to quite get there. They, they do pretty well. Now he's a junior, and they're starting, like, um, in one of his classes, he's learning how to make an argument. Um, that's really important. And uh, there's no guarantee that you're going to be able to do comparative analysis or make a solid argument by the time you get through college. But if you don't go to college, your chances of picking that up like I think are like zero. I, there's, I'm saying nothing against your friend's code camp, but they're not going to learn how to, let's say, think about uh, the Anthropocene yeah. and the possible collapse of, of political institutions yeah. in this country. That's, 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 not, that's not on track. That's right? actually what I brought up with Quincy, of course, because, of course, Quincy went to a liberal arts, has a degree, you know, actually then became a teacher. Like he's already at a point in his age at 31 when he actually then started doing software development where he had all that foundation. And it's just, I had this, I remember this story about um, Bruce Lee, the martial artist uh, performer. Uh And he had this whole, he started a whole school about how to punch. And he tried to ch- teach exactly different way in martial arts. It's famously he decided to talk, teach a different way. And I'm not going to judge whether it is better to learn that style or not from him. But, of course, it worked because he was famous and everybody wanted to work with him. And so they were doing what Bruce Lee did because Bruce Lee was doing that in the movies. But the truth is, just because it worked for him after thousands and thousands of hours of training under other masters, 
with other skills doesn't mean that will then work for the layman. Like it doesn't, it doesn't translate that way, right? Mm. You, a person can grow in certain ways based on their entire life experience. And I think that's part of what a university does is it allows you to have an immersive life experience and kind of set you up for everything you're doing right now is about learning and on your own, like it's your own guided. And that is a, it's a space that we're making for people. That being said, and I agree with that, and I think that's, you know, I think that's, I think Quincy would agree with that as well, that it's not, he was even saying very strongly, education's good, like you should do this before you definitely do that. But I think the other thing that we were talking about was the, and this is the kind of judgment call on it, the immense cost of doing that right now in the United States sets you up to be in debt. Like that's Mm -hmm. just how it works. If you happen to be from a wealthy family, sure, of course, go to college. But then again, if you're from a wealthy family, you probably will anyway, because it's kind of like that's, you know, that's expected in some ways. But that's the problem with it right now is not to me, my, to my mind, I think most people would do it if it was set up in such a way that it wasn't a financial disaster for them to do so. What do you think about that? Well, I, I think that there is a reason why education is essentially free in most of the rest of the world versus here. And it's because people think of it not as an individual item for a consumer, but rather they think of it as the production of the, the public good. Right. You, you, you educate your next generation because that's going to make your society, your country, your industry um, better. Um, yeah. You don't do it because, you know, it's something much nicer to own than a Cadillac. Yeah. Um, that, that's so, and, and the reason why you make, like you cut funding, we're, we're operating on about half at the UC system, working on about half the funds we had per student than we did in 1990. Right. What? We are just going down to that. It used to be like UC with Santa inflation Cruz. In, calculated in there yeah. or without inflation. Meaning, is it actually less money? It's way less money. Whoa. So, uh, just put it another way. Most of UCSC's budget used to come from the state. Now, I believe it's about 25% comes from the state. The state has radically... The citizens of California have decided that the University of California is not what they want to support. Even though when it comes time for their child to go... They think, hey, it's the University of California. Well, you know what? When you're only paying for 25% of it, you're a minority stakeholder. The, the other 75% is coming from a lot of different areas. You're not a, you're not a, you're, it, we shouldn't really be called the University of California. Because right? the money's coming from individuals and from, it's coming grants. from elsewhere, right? And the, the State University of New York faced up to this a few years ago. What they did? It's no longer called the State University of New York. At Buffalo, it's called the University of Buffalo. Wow. Right? So, um, and I shouldn't even complain because those percentages, like 10, 20, 30% of, uh, it depends on the campus, how much is coming from the state. But those are, uh, those percentages are high compared to other um, states. states. Like University of Cali- uh, Colorado, like they're in the single digits that is actually coming from the from so the, the state. The whole so, idea of the state to sponsor a school like this is to make the entire population 
get an education at a, you know, increase the percentage of chance of people having an education. That's right. With the idea that that's a better society. Right. And that, that's the way the University of California was set up. That's the way, it, you know, and expanded, especially in the 1960s. And that, that whole promise to the next generation has been abandoned by the, uh, by the taxpayers of the, of the state of California. And the reason why there's politically, it's very good especially if you are rich and educated, you don't want the rest of the, the population to get an education because then you're very easy to... Replace. Replace, to ignore, right? Most people are too busy with their jobs that don't pay enough um, and too busy with their their lives and so forth to participate in politics. right. Hey, and if you're, especially if you're a minority party, um, that's what you want. You want, you don't want people to vote, right? We've seen this massively across the country with all this voter suppression. Like the Republican Party does not want an educated population. Why have we, why has the nation decided that education is not important? Oh, I think it's been a combination of um, ideology. People think it's a consumer item rather than a public good. And part of it is just political strategy. There is a huge advantage to get the majority of the population to not vote. Then you don't have to deal with the majority of the population, right? Yeah. This has been the discovery, I think, of the Republican Party. I don't, but I don't think that's a planned thing. I don't think the, I mean, I think the Republican plan definitely has planned in the judicial system, absolutely. Do you think the, public, the Republican Party is, is, is planned to decrease the uh, the the education of the population yeah that's actually part yeah, of yeah they've 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 been attacking universities for years now but under the guise of not wasting money that's the the, exactly. the public way of saying it right right the public way of saying it is like um, there's not enough conservatives at the university um, the 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 public way of saying it has been you know uh, it costs too much and um, the end result is fewer people get educated, and so they don't have time or the willpower or the the education to actually participate in politics. Yeah, that's pretty dire. So that that's been an explicit strategy. I mean this this is this this has been since William F. Buckley. The way I'm learning the most in the last decade, no offense to reading. I mean, I've read your book and learned a lot from that, probably more from the <laughs> conversation with you about your book, but which a lot of them you can look at at geekspeak.org if you like, or you can read the book. It's uh, The Software Arts by Warren Sack, published by MIT Press. Okay. Anyway, <laughs> um, the, most, the way I've learned the most is actually YouTube videos in the last decade. Uh-huh. Um, I do a lot of, and sometimes it is for a specific purpose, and sometimes it's just generally knowledge my my knowledge of blacksmithing is better because of my experience watching these youtube videos i don't know if it's efficient but i do know that the other day my youngest who's you know she's in advanced math and all that um but not has never been like this math is everything to me like my middle child and, and sometimes my older child but my youngest child sat down at the dinner table and started to explain a very complicated math concept to his, her older brother and did a really pretty good job of it 
And it was not a topic that's brought in school because it's a, it's more of a math philosophical discussion than anything else. And it was really cool to see that. Now I'd watched the same video. So I knew where she was coming from and she did a really good job of describing it. And she has a feeling of ownership of that idea and this concept of like a, basically a higher level philosophical concept around math, which is not coming from her high school. And when she gets to college, it's very unlikely she'll get into math courses like that because it's just not her interest. She's probably going to be an artist, uh, animator, and probably won't go into the higher maths in college. So are we going to, is that going to happen? Are we going to see people just learning concepts on their own through social delivery mechanisms or internet delivery mechanisms and have an, could we have an educated population like that? Or is it too, is there something magic that happens in the course structure in the university structure that gives you something else? You know, I think what the, what the whole education system, not just the universities, but the whole education system needs to aim at is getting people to learn how to learn. That is to say, you get curious about math, let's say, and you have some notion about where you go figure that out. YouTube's not a bad place to go start some of that stuff oftentimes. But oftentimes, especially uh, this generation of college students, they don't know how incredibly more diverse and and rigorous and thorough and um, amazing the library is compared to YouTube. YouTube YouTube's great for certain things, but other things like the library is just hands down better. And so, you know, just learning things like oh, if I want to learn how to learn. I need to know about these resources for learning, like YouTube, but also the library. So learning how to learn, uh, learning empathy for other people. So I think it's really important that people learn another language because if you really know conceptually that other languages are spoken in the world, but you don't actually speak one, you don't really believe that people... It, it doesn't all happen in English. Right, right. It's really... That's really hard to get it. So empathy, like learning how to learn, and curiosity. Like you have to be curious about stuff. You have to isn't, isn't everybody inspire. curious at some point? Well, about isn't, some things, need? but I think part of that's part of what a really good teacher inspires. It's like, oh, someone like that knows this. I wonder what that is, right? Mm -hmm. So empathy, curiosity, and learning how to learn. Like... If those can be imparted, um, then the, the, the degrees and all of that, I don't know, bureaucratic side of education, getting your high school diploma, getting your college degree, getting your graduate degree, that's kind of, I don't know, that's, that's not so important for having an educated population. If people know, know how to figure it out themselves, like, fantastic tap your neighbors you learn blacksmithing by going to a blacksmith and saying how do i blacksmith yeah absolutely right? yeah which on the one hand you think like that's totally obvious but like how many people have done that like <laughs> i don't you're the only blacksmith i know <laughs> um so so i i think that that's really important but you know it's not just the universities that are attacked our k through 12 have been attacked um the California used to be the best state in the country for um, K through 12 education. That is, say, in terms of financing per student in the 1970s. And then Prop 13 came in, and now we're at the bottom of this, 
the yeah. stack, right? Yeah. Been totally decimated. The same and, way. and best education in the States at an era. And then after that era, you have Silicon Valley emerges. I wonder if there's a coincidence. <laughs> I, I don't, I don't, I wouldn't know how to link all those. Things no, up. I don't think you can. But, but I, I do know that I've lived in other countries and, you know, their K through 12 education is way better than ours. And so if you went through and got your equivalent of a high school degree in some other country that's way more solid than ours, you probably don't have to go to college. Like, because you know, you, you've got the, you've learned the other language, you have some like empathy, you've, you've got the curiosity, you know how to learn. Like, you're fine, you're good. Mm-hmm. Um, because they've invested there. But we've tried, as this country, we've tried to say, well, let's cut all like funding education from K all the way through graduate school and see how we do. <laughs> Here we are. Surprise. <laughs> People don't know how to judge what's true or even figure out how to learn. And we end up with these, um, with these huge political divisions because of that. I mean, the right, I just saw a study not that long ago where correlation to whether or not you're a Democrat versus whether or not you're a Republican has to do with how much schooling you have. So the biggest correlation, the yeah, there there's anomalies, of course, to that. There, but right, yeah, but you know, um, the Democrats have become the party of the educated, and who are for education, right? <laughs> that's, that's that shouldn't awful. be a political thing. That shouldn't that be should not be political. I mean, it shouldn't be political in the sense that it shouldn't be political in a democratic society. Right. Like the whole idea, the only way a democratic society works is you have a population that's intelligent enough or informed enough to make decisions on how to govern. Right. And if you don't have that population, then very quickly it doesn't be, it, it does, it isn't no longer a democratic uh, society because you can't trust the, the populace to make a decision that's intelligent. Right. So it is kind of correlated. Definitely you don't have to have, I mean, you can have political structures where you don't have an educated population. That's no problem. The government can work fine. People aren't probably going to suffer, but it exists. It just happens to be totalitarian governments that work, operate that way. Right. Which the, kind of are. Somewhat. You know, you, you look at the Republican Party and like the people in charge, like Trump went to an Ivy League school. Uh, Ted Cruz went to an Ivy League school. Like all these people, they pretend that they don't have that education when they perform, right? They, they actually tone down their vocabulary. They don't use all the fancy words that they know. They pretend that education isn't important but they all have it <laughs> they all have it and that's that's the position they want to be in you spoke earlier about or just just a little while ago we talked about you know people don't have time to actually participate in politics because they've got to pay their rent and they're stressed about everything and they're just yeah. there's just not enough time but partially because the cost of living versus what they're making you know it just doesn't really work <laughs> and doubly so when you don't have an education because you don't get the higher paying jobs so but there, there are also really easy fixes to that, right? Like Australia, you are required to vote. You are given a day off to vote. Voting day is a day off. You have one obligation. You have to go to the voting booth. That would change things a lot. I personally think also ranked voting would be better. Like we rank the top three people that we accept, basically allowing people to say, yeah, I do like you know, the, the liberal candidate and also the green candidate and not voting at all for maybe a candidate that's a little bit insane. Um, what I think you get over time is you don't have the duality of the political system of the well, Republican and Democratic that's, that's what happened system. in New York. Um, 
New York City, right? Yeah. That's why they just elected their mayor, who who stepped in uh, January first. Yeah, um, it was a little confusing, but you know, probably something we can all handle. Yeah, probably. <laughs> My friend who works with DOJ, DOJ, do uh, Department of Justice, said though that um, that it might not be as stable. It might not as be as functional as well. you might actually get really whacked out people in office in some places. So I'm not totally sure like of that, that idea. that can happen in a current system. That's the thing is it doesn't, <laughs> yeah, but he's not here to judge, to argue his case, um, so I won't belabor it. If you believe that these high Republican people are highly educated and yet they're espousing education is bad and they're lying about stuff, are they just being unethical or are they not aware of the quality of that? Because if they're aware that they are doing manipulation, then they're aware that they're 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 doing something wrong, right? Well, I, I just have no insight into the Republican Party right now. I I don't know anybody who's a Republican, so I, I just think I'm in no position to to answer that. Fair enough. All, all I'm saying is that uh, from the other side of the political fence, I can see that their strategies have been extremely effective, whether or not they are sincere about hating education or not, their attack on education um, lends them the populace that they want, which Mm. is people don't go to the polls. People don't have time to go to the polls, right? Um, And uh, when people are faced with a decision, they don't know how to figure it out, right? And so they prefer... It's a big portion of the country right now that prefers to have an authoritarian government rather than a democratic government. Why? Well, someone else is making the decisions. There must be some comfort in that. So I'm just saying, you know, I look at it and I see, well, that's strategic. That's the strategic advantage of tearing down education. And and from my perspective, it seems um, like... They've got a, a winning formula mm. there, but I think it's putting us all like in a in a handbasket headed towards hell because um, we need to collectively figure out what's next, and that can't be done if people don't know how to think um, for themselves. They don't know how to learn how to learn. They don't have any curiosity or empathy for the rest yeah. of the world. And that's it's, the part where you just don't want to get to the point where you're a nihilist, nihilist on it, right? Like, Yeah. So, okay, here's here's a thought. And this is my radio brain probably just saying, okay, we're going to tie this up in a nice little bow. But let's see how I do. <laughs> we, we agree that technology is an amplifier of human endeavor, right? Yeah, I think that's, that's, uh, that's classic media theory. That's McLuhan. So... You're trying something right now to learn a language, which is wouldn't be functional without technology. It's so functional, in fact, it's free to you to use. Like it's not, I mean, that's impressive that we can get a full system that will help you learn a language basically for free. I actually have the paid version. What's the free count do? Is it advertised based or is it something? Yeah. Oh, see, it used to be that it wasn't, when it was first launched, it wasn't ads and they're making revenue somehow, some other way. I wasn't sure how, but now they're doing it basic. Okay. So you're paying for it, but it's cheap. Yeah. And by the way, the advertising variant is a paid variant. It's just paying for your time rather than your cash. So that is a paid application. I hope people start thinking about applications that give you ads. 
you are paying for them. Mm-hmm. That's not free. That's paid. It's just eyeball paid. We need some kind of catchy name for that term. But in any case, you pay for it. But it's cheap. Yeah? It's not like yeah. if you were to go to college and, and take a course on it. No, no, no. So the ability to learn language and my friend is showing that the ability to, turn, to learn programming are both things that technology can do so efficiently that it's effectively cheap or extremely free to do. Mm-hmm. Can we do that with more education? Can we do that, enhance this idea of the three cores you were talking about, learning how to learn, empathy, and curiosity? Can we teach those with technology somehow more efficiently? Therefore, therefore to fulfill the lower cost, lower funding we actually have for those things in our society? I think those need to be learned without technology. I think those actually, the, those, those are kind of core things like are about as hard to learn as walking or any, any, any kind of physical thing. You, you, you're not, you're not going to learn that through a screen, but, um, Ivan Illich, uh, was a, I don't know, a cultural critic, political theorist, uh, media studies person who died about 20 years ago now. And he wrote this book in the early 1970s, uh, before computers were really a mass thing, right? And the, book, the name of the book, it's a little thin volume called De-Schooling Society. He says, we can get rid of all educational institutions. What we need is more or less a vast database where people sign up either to learn or to teach. And you list all the skills that you can teach, and then you list all the skills that you want to learn. This sounds like free school, something that was existing in Santa Cruz Royal. Um, Wes Modes actually was a teacher and, and kind of proponent of free school. And I, I wouldn't be surprised if it was inspired by, by Ivan Illich's idea. Um, and I think it was totally uh, – it, it, was, it was a novel idea from the perspective of how you use a computer – no oh, one else was talking about how to pair people up to learn stuff via a computer database and um, a totally workable plan. So, but people well, have to want, they have to have the curiosity, they have to be able to fill out not just what they can teach, but what they want to learn. They have right? to be the empathy, they have to have the empathy enough to know that they want to be a teacher. They have to have the learning and curi- learn, the ability to learn how to learn and also the curiosity to actually use the system. So basically, right. you need those core things already you to use it. You need that before right. before it can even get launched. Right. But once once it's there, I I mean, YouTube is an incredible resource. Libraries are. It's an almost like an resource. example of that in some sense, right? Yeah. 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 I think uh, you know, there's there's a great parody of all this in um, that that film Goodwill Hunting, where Matt Damon plays the janitor. This kid who grows up in Southie in Boston and um, he's a janitor at MIT um, and he's got an incredible memory and voracious reading appetite and he's just read everything and uh, the math department at MIT lists some open math problems on a chalkboard out in the hallway and he as the janitor mopping the hall like solves them and it just freaks everybody out right and he more or less says, why do you spend all your money like going to these 
these fancy schools just go to the library. It costs you a dollar for your for your library card. Um, which shows, yeah, of course, like in theory, that's possible. Yeah. But unless you actually have that drive and that empathy, that curiosity, you know how to go to the library, like that's that's just not going to happen. So for most of us, we need the training wheels of an yeah. educational institution. Uh, my software programming knowledge all comes from self-guided learning. Uh-huh. I didn't do that in school. I did one pro- computer programming course. Um but I'm just coincidentally, I've always been interested in learning. And that was probably just something I picked up very early on in the way I was raised or something that, that gave me that appetite for that curiosity. Right. Right. I, but you're unusual. Wow. Yeah, I guess so. I, so, but you're, but the, the, there is a potential there for even though you wouldn't want to do this through the screen. And I agree with you, by the way. I love that idea that those core elements are human connection elements. The desire to engage in the world is an emotional space. It's an empathetic space. It's a, a curiosity space, which are all driven prior. They exist without the technology is not part of the existence of those things. I get that. But there are technical tools that would allow you to set up systems that would be potentially better. For example, free school of pulling people together. You theoretically could at least set up more structures in our world for that. However, all of that stuff actually also takes time. And if you take the population and make them busy all the time to make sure they get bread in the door, then they don't have the time to do that kind of thing. All right. Yeah. Interesting. And depressing. If we still live in a democratic society, it's our choice, right? I've, I don't know. I've been reading these books on uh, Scandinavian social systems and stuff. And if you think about it, like if you live in Scandinavia, you don't have to worry about retirement. Because you don't have to save for retirement. They're going to take care of you. You get a pension. You don't have to worry about health care. You have health care. You don't have to, you don't have to uh, worry about housing. If you're out of a job, they give you a house, right? They give you a place to live. It's fine. Um, if you, you're not going to starve, right? So as soon as you take those things, those issues, uh, also um, child care, okay, free Nursery, preschool, K through, and not just 16. education structure. Actual childcare as well. Right. Yeah. If you took those worries off every off the back of every American adult, can you imagine what the population would be like? It'd be amazing. It it would be totally different. Well, most of us are preoccupied with like just trying to have that. That is completely a decision. Um, on a governmental level about whether or not we want a society where everybody's free of those concerns and can contribute in some other way other than just getting that next paycheck or not. Yeah. Have you ever been tempted to move back to Scandinavia? You know, I, I went before I, I, I graduated from high school early and I went and did a semester at the university in, um, in Norway and um, at that point, I got into college in the United States, and I needed to make a decision. Was I going to continue in Norway or was I going to come back to the United States? And I think, um, you know, I came back. I think Because it's, it was it's, Yale. Well, <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> no, it's more complicated than that. Sure. It's, sure. it's really hard. I've, I've lived, you know, several years outside of the country. And 
you're fine for a little while, but the people who are long-term expats have a kind of uh, endurance and tenacity that few of us do. Like, it's really hard at a certain level to, like, not have shared experiences from early childhood, from childhood. Even at that age, you know, I was 18. And even at that age, I'd, I'd been there when I was 14, so I, I had some of that. But I was still a foreigner, yeah. right? And so... It gives you a lot more empathy for um, for uh, people that move into the country, huh? Oh, my goodness. You have huge respect for, for migrants because yeah. if you're an immigrant, you have to... There's so many things you just don't know what's going on, right? Yeah. Um, you don't know how to navigate. You don't know what... Yeah, so everything from social cues to, like, how do you participate in this field or right. this area of whatever, leisure or work. Um, and so, yeah, I think, I think, you know, what I felt was what many potential immigrants feel, which is the, the pull back to the, the ground of the familiar. Um, and I, I think, yeah, I would love, I have some fantastic friends in Scandinavia. I'd love to spend some time there. Um, but to think of moving there forever, that I, I think I'd have to feel if, if for some reason or another, like the, the United States had just completely closed its doors on me. Mm. Which I suppose, you know, that's... It's a possibility. That's a possibility. Um, I, I, it's I happened to other people in other countries, right? I'm, I really still feel like the Constitution has a really great way, some great ideas. They're, my, I remember kind of being poo-poo on the U.S. at one point, And Miles Elam, my collaborator for Geek Speak for years and a good mm-hmm. friend of mine, said, yeah, but the Constitution's really, really good. <laughs> and I was like, what? And he had this real, like, love for it. And as I thought about it, I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah, right. It has some really smart things in it. This idea of checks and balances, of a balanced system, like the reason why AI actually works right now, or I should say machine learning stuff actually works, is because it has a feedback system. Like feedback systems are really smart. And that's what our constitution does. It does have a feedback system, theoretically. And right now, and and that kind of gave me some hope. But right now, I don't see it happening. I Mm -hmm. don't see Congress checking. uh, I don't see the branches checking themselves at all. You know, it's It's bad. And so if you have the fundamental reason why it should work actually being tested and it not showing that it's working, there's a problem there. And so for the first time in my life, I'm going, yeah, this, I could see the democracy failing. I could see America failing. And that's really scary. I think everybody kind of saw that um, a couple of years ago on the 6th of January. A year ago on the 6th of January? A year ago on the 6th of January. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, th- I think. And the lack of a correct response to that. But then, uh, you know... I feel like I'm not strong enough because there's other populations. If you just think of the the African-American population of this country where democracy didn't exist for them for hundreds of years. Right. right. And yet they stuck it out, right? <laughs> um, like this is, I, I don't know, it's got to be, it's it's got to sound incredibly wimpy to them to think like, oh, right. oh you might, you hmm. Oh, now you think it's not working? <laughs> How about that? Yeah, we can't vote. How about and that? this thing is large population can't vote right now. Last, the last, the long lines of voting is exact example of that. It's pretty, yeah. it's pretty dire. Yeah. So I, I think for some people, this country has never met the promise of the Constitution. 
and yet yeah, a, mar- a marvelous thing. Um, but for for those of us who are incredibly privileged right now, like things are working really well. Um, yeah. Even even if it looks like we're at the edge of a precipice, um, you know, I'm I'm just thinking of other people who've you know just trying to escape gang violence in El Salvador or, um, you know, if you were a Jew in Nazi Germany, like that's your country shutting the door on you. Right. That's, right. that's those are extreme conditions. Well, that, that's totally true. And I don't compare you to any of those situations. You're fine. Right. Yeah. <laughs> you got a paycheck. Everything's fine. Um, well, I don't have an answer to it. I don't have an answer to any of it. It sounds like you've got a good thing that was a core, which I, I tend to believe in, and that is that education is really the thing we've got to we've got to do. We've got to get the population educated. I mean that that would be the other reason to move. I think is if I felt like my country had given up on my uh, on my work per se, on my on education, for example, right? And there there is an argument for that. That like Scandinavia sounds like. Scandinavia has continued to invest in education for its citizens. Our country has not. And so, you know, not out of fear of my life, but fear to, uh, but uh, a desire to contribute where I feel like I do the most good. Moving to a country that actually supports what I'm trying to do um, might make sense. But at the same token, there's a lot of things that could be done here that would have a major effect on people. For yeah, sure. so for sure. But all I'm saying is that you know it's not just fear that drives people out of a country; it's also opportunity. I would say. Remember a few minutes ago when we said, "Hey, let's go do a uh, let's go record some audio upstairs because I need to do an episode this today." And <laughs> Maggie and Jennifer looked at us kind of jokingly and then said, "Yeah, okay." And I said, "Hey, it's okay. We'll just do a half an hour." Right. Yeah, that was two hours ago. Two hours ago. Okay. Yeah, whoops. Well, I think I think you can just take the first 15 minutes here about Duolingo. I'm like, that's good. Just, <laughs> no, I think all of it's good. No, just, just that. You know what? Maybe I'll put a warning at the end of the Duolingo discussion that this goes on a little while longer. <laughs> <laughs> but I think it was a really interesting conversation. And, yeah, and I had been talking, all over the place. I had been talking about education for a while you know, because of my discussion with Quincy. Uh-huh. I would love to see what you think about um, Free Code Camp from a, teach, from a learning right. software well, I'll listen to that. I, like I said, I or I just play with the app this yeah. this week. You, you're producing a lot of stuff. I'm producing so too much to listen. It's a little to. hard to, to <laughs> keep up, but I'll try to listen to that and go see the free code camp. Yeah, yeah the the tools are just really neat. Yeah, um, but it's nice to hear, like, to get a reassurance about how important um, a liberal education actually is. Yeah, yeah. I've been using the term liberal education because I think I picked that up from you. Is that the right term? Liberal arts education, liberal education. What what is that term from? Yeah, I mean it's it's undergone a lot of different um, changes over the last two thousand years. Um, thousand years, I guess, is pretty much when that would have been the Latin phrase. And in some countries, it doesn't really make much sense at all. Like they don't know what that is in Scandinavia. They don't know really know what that is in France. It's an archaic term. But in the United States, it really means, um, you know, you're not exclusively devoted to one major at the university, that you take classes outside of your major. 
It's a broad education. And this is kind of why when you look at going to get a bachelor's degree and you start looking at what classes you need, like if you're taking a math class, you still have to have a humanities class. Like there's this idea you've got a a broad spectrum. And so that come the, that is a Latin term of liberal. It means that broadness. Yeah. Yeah, Okay. Well, um, it's, it's a little, it's a little more complicated than that. And it's too late for us to continue this discussion. But, but, you know, in, in the United States, it, it really means, um, that aspect of university education that actually irritates a lot of undergraduates that they have to take classes outside of their major. Um, but the, its design is so that you have a broad education. And if you encounter some topic or some subject or some skill that um, is kind of out of your um, your usual repertoire, you have some notion about what to do with it or how to think about it. That's right. why it's important. Right. Okay, cool. Thanks. And then, and that is the right term then, liberal arts still, or liberal education or liberal arts yeah. education? Yeah. Which one do you call it? People use both. Yeah. Okay. So I was saying it recently and it sounded strange on my tongue because I've been outside of academia for a while. And I'm like, well, why does this feel strange to me? Am I using the term wrong? Well, it's, it's just, it sounds like something to do with politics, right? It does. But it's not, it's, it's, it's so not politically there, liberal. Is there a... <laughs> except that That's coincidentally it also is. You're right. Because... Because of... <laughs> The, yeah, the polarization of yeah. of this country. Okay, but that's the best term now for it. Yeah. All right. Uh, university education is the way you could, talk, could say it now. Yeah, but I, I think it's it's a really important point because, you know, I am all for code camps. I think that's fantastic. But that can't be all that one gets. Right. Training is not education. That's why it's called Training trade schools. Is being able to do a particular thing. Education means really learning how to learn. Oh, cool. Yeah. And that's the thing that I think that Free Code Camp actually is, is a trade school in software development, right? Like a like you go and learn to be a mechanic. Like it's, you know, well, it's maybe, a deep, complicated maybe it's thing really to do. it's really empowering but... for some people learning, learning how to learn something like that, right? Maybe yeah. they've never done anything technical. It's suddenly like, oh my God, here's, I can do this, right? Well, I... And, you know, you and I have talked a lot about the problems with teaching software and how software, I mean, you have a whole book on this idea that software is like this computer science slash mathematics kind of discipline. In reality, programming is actually not very closely related to that. And so I think it's very common for people to like go through school, have a bad time in math and have difficulty and then go, well, I can't do computer science. I can't be a programmer. And so like the math leads into not being a programmer. And the truth is you don't actually have to be very good at math to be a programmer right. <laughs> it's just that you can't get there through traditional means so there you is just, something you just too. can't be intimidated by math right right <laughs> that's true you have to be comfortable enough but the thing is we tr- we i don't know it feels like we're teaching people to be intimidated with math but, but that's, that's a conversation is, well, right like yeah you look you face that you face that page of latin or you face that page of mathematics and you say well there's probably a way to figure this out yeah yeah well, thank you, Warren, very much for spending some time with me. Yeah, this is great. Good. I'm, I'm going to try nice. not to edit this. Nice, nice project, Lyle. <laughs>